Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Grammar of Faith, Watching and Waiting, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October the 7th, 2007. Welcome to Hell. Thus did retired Colonel John Anderson greet Brian Steidel when his helicopter landed at the Nyala Airport in southern Darfur. Steidel had arrived to replace Anderson on a team that was monitoring the atrocities in Sudan, the largest country in Africa. And as he would learn in the coming months, Anderson's greeting was no joke. Steidel's book, The Devil Came on Horseback, might be short on history, culture, and political analysis, but it's nevertheless a comprehensive documentation of Darfur's epic tragedy. It's based upon his own photo archive of 3,000 pictures, an audio journal he made on an MP3 player, personal notes, emails, intelligence collected from some 30 NGOs, and about 80 official reports that his team wrote. Steidel bears witness to the horrors he documented on a daily basis as a leader for a monitoring team with the African Union. Children who had been shackled together, raped, and then burned alive. Gang rape of women and girls regardless of age. Grotesque dismemberment of victims. The total burning of hundreds of villages the bulldozing of camps for internally displaced persons, starvation and disease, mass graves, jets and helicopter gunships slaughtering civilians in the marketplace, and endless cases of pillage and plunder. One of the most chilling pieces of evidence in Steidel's book is a government document specifying their official policy of ethnic cleansing. Upwards of 500,000 black African Muslims have been killed by the Sudanese army and police in the Janjaweed militia, literally, devil on a horse. This is the militia that President Omar Bashir's government has funded, trained, complete with graduation exercises, armed, and closely collaborated with in attacks. An additional two to three million people have been internally displaced. The Sudanese government knew that it could continue the genocide with impunity because the international community has stood by and done nothing. Darfur today gives us some idea about how the ancient Hebrews felt after Babylonian hordes ransacked Jerusalem. In the readings this week, the dirges from Lamentations describe the slaughter and destruction. In chapter 1, we read about depopulated villages, abandoned streets that once bustled with business, refugees deported to foreign lands, starvation, massive unemployment, and the humiliation and helplessness that result from total subjugation. Where was God in all that death and destruction? Exiled to the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in Babylon, 
the psalmist for this week raged for revenge. We read in Psalm 137, 8 and 9, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you've done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. For a long time, I found this verse embarrassing, but I've come to appreciate it as an authentic cry of righteous indignation. Who wouldn't? Who shouldn't beg for divine retribution for psychopathic dictators like Paul Pot, Omar Bashir, Saddam Hussein, or Robert Mugabe? Still, there's a very thin line between the prayer for divine retribution and the lust for human revenge. And perhaps the psalmist is a classic case of the oppressed victim becoming the new oppressor. Whereas the psalmist raged, the prophet for this week, Habakkuk, complained that God felt silent and aloof. We read in the very first verse of the first chapter, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? And why would God choose wicked Babylon to punish elect Israel? O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Just where was the moral calculus in all of that? God responded to Habakkuk in the famous verse of chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. That's not what Habakkuk wanted to hear. He says that it made his heart pound, his lips quiver, and his legs tremble. But he nevertheless chose faith and decided to watch and wait. And so we read in Habakkuk 3, verses 16 to 18, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. This was clearly no plea bargain with God or any quid pro quo. Habakkuk's faith didn't depend upon a favorable outcome. In the Gospel this week, Jesus invites us to choose the paradox of faith over the logic of doubt. In Luke chapter 17, verse 6, he says that mustard seed faith can move mountains and mulberry trees. What might Jesus mean by such obvious hyperbole? My ninth grade English teacher, Mrs. Tilly, taught us that a transitive verb always requires an object, such as, I lifted the rock. Unlike an intransitive verb that does not require an object, such as, I sleep. And so the transitive verb, faith, always requires an object. It's almost impossible to say, I believe, and simply leave it at that. Believe who? Or believe what?
Rather, we say, I believe that. And so Jesus turned our focus away from the faith by which one believes, in other words, the subjective act of the believer, to the faith that is believed, to the objective truth of who or what we believe. And so the tiniest act of faith in the unconditionally good God can give us hope. Faith believes that, despite all the bad stuff in the world or in my life, bad dreams, bad luck, bad choices, bad health, bad dictators, nothing can separate me from God's love. It believes that God knows my every need and desire, that I can and should live gladly because of the knowledge of His love that I can accept that I'm accepted, that I can feel at home in the world, and that God wills me nothing but good. Faith isn't artificial optimism. It's not a leap into the irrational, or as the Sunday school joke has it, believing what you know ain't true. Rather, it's what you give your heart to, and at least in this sense, everyone has faith in someone or something, even the atheist. Faith means to keep your eyes open like Habakkuk, with expectation, watching and waiting. It's the beggar's empty hand that entrusts oneself to a good God. Faith, we read in Hebrews 11 verse 1, is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen, all of which enables us to journey on even though we can't see far down the road. The Grammar of Faith, Watching and Waiting For books this week, I review Out of Iraq, A Practical Plan for Withdrawal Now, by George McGovern and William R. Polk. New York, Simon & Schuster, 2006, 142 pages. In 1972, George McGovern lost the presidential election to Richard Nixon by an electoral college vote of 520 to 17. He even lost his home state of South Dakota due in large part to his liberal opposition to the war in Vietnam. The ridicule he experienced was intense. But 35 years later, I dare say that history views him differently. Perhaps with this book, we'll listen to him now. After serving as a bomber pilot in World War II, earning a PhD from Northwestern University, in serving in both the House and the Senate for over 20 years, George McGovern has distinguished himself with a broad array of humanitarian causes. His co-author, William Polk, taught at the Harvard and the University of Chicago, in addition to serving as a Middle East specialist in the State Department. The title of their book is a bit misleading. In the first four chapters, they explain why we need to exit Iraq, in their view. 
They view the war as not only a calamitous mistake, but a terrible and useless waste of people and finances, because, ultimately, the war as it has been waged is unwinnable. The longer we stay, the worse it will get. And so true patriotism and true support of our troops means we should exit Iraq as soon as possible. Especially helpful in these first four chapters is a general and simple history of Iraq with special, special focus since the British invasion in World War I. McGovern and Polk are harsh in their verdict about the rationale for the war. The many falsehoods the public has been told were due partly to gross incompetence, but also to deliberate deception. Beyond the many costs of the war to our country and even the world, the public's trust of its political institutions has been badly corroded. Only in a fifth chapter do the authors explain how we might leave Iraq. Reading their 24 bullet points, pages 96 to 122, about the military, economic, cultural, civic, political, social, and moral complexities of any exit of any sort makes you realize just how catastrophic the war has been. This is a debacle that will take decades to repair, and the sooner we start, the better. George Govern and William R. Polk, Out of Iraq, A Practical Plan for Withdrawal Now. For film this week, I review Letters from Iwo Jima from the year 2006. In this sequel to his earlier film, Flags of Our Fathers, although you can watch either film first, director Clint Eastwood tells the story of that famous battle from the perspective of our enemy, who, by the way, were the losers, the Japanese soldiers. Japan's 22,000 soldiers fought bravely for 40 days against an American invasion of 70,000 troops. Only 2,000 Japanese survived the carnage. This film does a remarkable job of helping us to view our ostensible enemies as fellow human beings. In almost every respect, the combatants are mirror images of each other. They complain about army food, make crude jokes about women, see through the lies that their governments feed them, fight bravely despite being horribly under-resourced, cuss at broken equipment, make the best of a dehumanizing task, and receive and write letters to their loved ones back home. When a Japanese soldier reads a letter that he took from a dead American, he remarks, I was taught to believe that the Americans were cowards and savages. But when I read this letter from the soldier's mother, I realize that he is just like me. Letters from Iwo Jima in Japanese with English subtitles. And finally, this week for poetry, we've posted a poem called A Hymn to the Evening by Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley lived from 1753 to 1784. She was born in Senegal, then taken as a slave to the United States at the age of eight. 
There she was purchased by a Boston tailor, John Wheatley, whose daughter taught Phyllis to read English, Latin, and Greek. Wheatley was the first African-American to publish a book of poetry and the first woman of any race to publish a book in America. She died in Boston in extreme poverty at the age of 31. A Hymn to the Evening by Phyllis Wheatley Soon as the sun forsook the eastern main, the pealing thunder shook the heavenly plain. Majestic grandeur from the zephyr's wing exhales the incense of the blooming spring. Soft pearl the streams, the birds renew their notes, and through the air their mingled music floats. Through all the heavens what beauteous dyes are spread, but the west glories in the deepest red. So may our breasts with every virtue glow, the living temples of our God below. Filled with the praise of him who gives the light and draws the sable curtains of the night, let placid slumbers soothe each weary mind at morn to wake more heavenly, more refined. So shall the labors of the day begin more pure, more guarded from the snares of sin. Night's leaden scepter seals my drowsy eyes, then cease my song till fair aurora rise. A Hymn to the Evening by Phyllis Wheatley Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 7th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.